Hello, listeners of The Bit. We're doing a special end-of-the-year podcast promo where you can get a month of free upstream if you send us an email telling us you listen to the podcast. You'll get four issues of the newspaper and full access to Upstream Online, including all of our archives. So email bobby.coles, that's B-O-B-B-Y dot C-O-L-E-S, at upstreamonline.com right now to take advantage of this limited-time offer. Welcome to The Bit, a podcast from Upstream, the international oil and gas newspaper. This is the week of December 12th. My name is Luke Johnson. I write for Upstream. With me today in Houston is Bureau Chief Noah Brenner. How you doing, Noah? Tired, Luke. Tired. <laughs> we're all a little, little drowsy, I think. But uh, this week, we're going to talk about the Permian Basin, and you put a lot of work in on this uh, focus issue that we put out in the newspaper this week you're able to crank it out on fairly short notice a nice 10 page feature on the permian basin so we're going to take a deep dive into that that's uh, that's where all my energy went i'm, I'm on a permian focus hangover at this point <laughs> um all right so we will also hear part of your interview with uh a true legend of the permian basin uh jim henry the founder of henry petroleum and later henry resources a man that many listeners probably haven't heard of, but whose work most are no doubt familiar with. That is coming up in a little bit. Let me also mention here that Upstream has a hot new exclusive story on ExxonMobil's Lisa project off Guyana on the front page of this week's newspaper. That's also posted now at upstreamonline.com. So if you're interested in Lisa, you really need to subscribe because, frankly, no one is covering Lisa better than the team at Upstream. So click on over to Upstream Online to read that story and lots more. But this week, we're all about the Permian. So, Noah, you spent a fair amount of time out in Midland and in the Delaware subbasin talking to a lot of old West Texas producers. And um, you probably got way more material than you're able to squeeze into these 10 pages. So let's talk about it. Um, I guess we'll focus first on A&D or M&A or whatever the kids are calling it these days. After all, the Permian Basin has been pretty much the hottest area in all of oil and gas for acquisitions over the past year or so. So what exactly do you think is driving this interest and just what kind of valuations are we seeing on the land out there? Well, I mean, what's driving it is it's this growing recognition that the Permian is the low-cost basin for the U.S. right now, at least the largest, lowest-cost basin. There are certainly uh, core areas and other plays that are you know, have attractive economics and can certainly work at these prices. You know, the scoop stack, is particularly the stack play as well, um, looks like it's got some really attractive economics, but it's it's smaller geographically and, and much more sort of wrapped up um, by a handful of producers. And so the Permian is the the place for, for onshore companies to get a foothold and uh, get in at what looks to be high valuations, but... You know, when you break it down, it still looks pretty attractive. So, you know, there was some research out from IHS recently. We've seen $20 billion in deals in the Permian Basin year to date so far. That was only in transactions above $50 million. Uh, and they're expecting that that's, I mean, it's certainly accelerated through the third quarter of 2016. And they're expecting it to just keep on accelerating through the fourth quarter and into 2017. We're definitely seeing sort of a 40,000 an acre benchmark established. You know, it's going to range from 20,000 an acre all the way up to, we have seen a, a 60,000 an acre. It is. 
Granted, that was more of a bolt-on acquisition. It had some favorable infrastructure in there. I mean, there's a reason, you know, when companies are paying up a little bit more, it often is that it just integrates so well into their projects. One of the things that is interesting to note is the Delaware Basin uh, on a per acre basis is catching up with the Midland Basin, essentially has caught the Midland Basin. We're seeing them more or less at parity, you know, uh, perhaps you might see maybe a little bump in core Midland acreage versus core Delaware because it's oftentimes, you know, you don't know exactly where the core of the Delaware is in certain places. Um, but, uh, you know, it's also that core Midland acreage just doesn't come up for sale hardly anymore, not in anything blocky. Uh, the other thing that's interesting, you know, acreage only is fine. We're seeing companies that are willing to pay, you know, th there doesn't need to be a production component to it. Um, and in some cases, there doesn't even have to be a ton of wells. And this was something that was really, I guess, somewhat concerning to me or, or really made me wonder. Um, but talking with folks that, that evaluate these deals and that advise companies who are selling, there's such great well control in the Permian Basin. There are so many vertical wells that have been drilled through a variety of shallow and deep uh, strata to test them conventionally that you are really able to, to do a lot of work and a lot of homework, um, but you're really able to kind of see what you're getting ahead of time. So companies are able to build acreage positions, drill just a handful of wells um, across a fairly wide area and sell that because the buyer is pretty certain of, of what's under the subsurface there mm. because it is such a legacy basin. So just getting back on valuations there, uh, those are some pretty eye-popping numbers. I mean, <laughs> some are for, upwards of 40,000, even 60,000 an acre. And even if they are... You know they do fit well in a portfolio. That's that's pretty steep. I mean, especially for this onshore sector that is already you know has a lot of debt obligations already. Um, so I mean, do you think these prices are overheated? Um, you know, I think it's. Uh, I would say yes. These these prices are very steep. I mean, I think I could work most of my life and and uh, on a on a journalist salary and maybe buy. Uh, <laughs> 100 acres or something in the Permian for, you know, my career. You make that much? Uh, shh, don't, <laughs> don't tell anyone. Um, no, but, uh, you know, that was my main question. And one of sort of my thesis going into to researching this um, was, you know, are these, is, is it overheated? Is this a bubble? Are companies going to be able to make attractive projects and have attractive economics on their developments when they pay so much for the underlying acreage? And so let's just, you know, everybody I talked to said no. People said, you know, the not overheated, not overheated. And even, you know, talking with folks like Jim Henry, who have been out in the basin for a long time, they've seen acreage prices go up and down. And he said, this is the most expensive I've ever seen acreage. At the same point, he broke down exactly what I'm going to break down here. And it's using a, you know, I really don't like the net equivalent acre metric. You know, when companies have 40,000 acres in the Permian and then they multiply it by, you know, eight benches and then there's multiple landing zones within that and somehow they come up with like 1.2 million acres. Um, which, you know, I'm, I'm, suspe I'm suspicious of that math because not every bench is proven up in every place. Different benches are going to have different type curves. You're going to get uh, different formations reacting differently when you stick, when you wine rack a bunch of laterals down into them. Um, or, you know, it's that stack stagger pattern that, that a lot of people are, are moving towards. All those things are going to impact your economics. But let's look at you know, what it does break down to. At 40000 an acre, let's say you've got four benches. And in a lot of places, four benches is a good conservative estimate. Um, so you're down to 10000 per net effective acre. Now, if you really start looking at, um, we're seeing a lot of companies begin to delineate within some of these benches, upper, lower, Wolf Camp A, upper, lower, Wolf Camp B. Um, we're seeing, uh, Devin just came out with a really interesting spacing test in the Avalon Shale on the Delaware Subbasin, uh, looking at the Avalon BC. 
And so you start looking at that and it you know, it's fairly easy to get those sort of per zone prices down to say 5,000 to 8,000 per acre per zone, which when you think about other plays, other tied oil plays in the U.S. is really pretty reasonable. Uh, and this is into a basin where technology is only beginning to really take hold. Uh, it's not to say that the the Permian necessarily is is behind. I think it's accelerating very fast. But the types of improvements that we've seen pushed through the Eagleford, that we've seen pushed through the Bakken, even that we've seen pushed through some of the gas plays in terms of proper spacing, proper identification of your landing zones, uh, proper uh, ways to complete these wells, even how do you flow them back? What's the optimal way to begin producing these so that you don't screw up your frack job? Um, the Permian is not as far along as other, as other plays are in that. And so... Yeah, I mean, I think you can make a very, very strong case that maybe the acres should be worth even more. Hmm. Ah, that's interesting. I mean, I guess that is that is part of what makes Permian so attractive is there's all these all these different zones to produce from, and they're only just starting to realize how productive a lot of them are. Yeah, and as they're proven up, I mean, the acreage is is fast changing hands. People are consolidating, and it's it's. I, I think you are going to see acreage prices continue to go up, uh, especially for those uh, either packages that are very core or packages that are, say, offset um, a major operator's uh, position there. You know, the idea of bolt-on acreage, especially in the Permian where lateral lengths are are lengthening out quickly um, from, say, 5,000 all the way up to 10,000, you probably got an average of 7,500. You know, you got to put two sections together to drill a 10,000-foot lateral, and that's a big deal. Okay, well, let's focus then on kind of the hottest part of the hottest play uh, for acquisitions, the Delaware Basin, where um, we're seeing a lot of the most, the more recent deals um, executed. So for potential sellers in the Delaware Basin, are, are most of them just selling out to a, a bigger company or are we going to start seeing, um, you know, more kind of IPOs like we did in the Midland Basin? That's another really good question. And I think, you know, we did see this string of IPOs. The Midland Basin created uh, a handful of companies that are, you know, very sort of household names now. I mean, the the, the RSP Permians, uh, Diamondback, Parsley Energy. Um, and so, you know, it was widely expected that you would just see the same dynamic play out in the Delaware Basin, where you did have a lot of private equity-backed companies that established good positions and wanted to monetize them. What we have seen is more companies running what's being called or what's you know, in finance referred to this dual process, which is essentially moving towards an IPO, getting all your paperwork ready, doing all the types of uh, reservoir engineering, um, going through getting all your reserves in order to, to be public and to meet that very high hurdle of documentation that's needed to be a public company. But yet at the same time, they're using all that information that they've gleaned and putting it into a data room to see if somebody wants to buy them outright. Because let's be honest, it can be a headache to be a public company and have to you know, please shareholders on a quarterly basis and, and uh, you know, make all these presentations and things. And right now what we're seeing is that um, the private market's paying. The private market's paying what public markets are willing to pay, if not more in a lot of cases. And so it hasn't been attractive for companies to IPO. You know, something else that I didn't really get space to address in the focus, but that was brought up to me and I thought was really interesting is a lot of the positions in the Delaware Basin actually were smaller than what we saw people go public with in the Midland Basin. You know, you weren't seeing 80,000 acres um, necessarily in these private equity-backed companies that were, were thinking about going public. Oftentimes, it was more like uh, 25 to maybe 40,000. You know, in some cases, it was as, as low as 19 or 20,000. 
and what was you know, pointed out is, look, if you go public with that, you're you're a very small cap company. I mean, you still have some. You know, there's some significant hurdles there in terms of getting a, a valuation um, with investors seeing that you've got running room, and you know, just sort of managing through what's still really vol. <coughs> excuse me, managing through what's still really a volatile commodity market. Um, and so it just didn't have kind of the scale. The other reason is those Midland independents have done so well in the public markets. And in a way, they've kind of eaten up the Delaware Basin in a lot of different instances. And, and you know, it was those same players I brought up before, RSP Permian, Parsley, Diamondback, they've all done deals to get into the Delaware Basin. Those deals were all done in large, you know, on the strength of their equity. You know, right now, Permian pure play operators are trading at a premium. And I mean, so let's say, you know, their equity is valued at, you know, one and a half times and, and you know, that of their competitor, uh, someone who's not a pure play permian, they can afford to go in and pay more for that acreage if they're funding it with an equity offering. And so, you know, in a way it's, you know, you're, you're walking in with, with, it's easier for you to come up with that pile of, of money that's needed to, to buy out a, a Delaware competitor. Um, and so they're using that very valuable currency. We've seen them go to the market over and over and over, and, and investors have been eating up these offerings and oftentimes sending their stock higher despite the dilution just on the basis that they're picking up acreage that is, is very, very valuable. So the Permian has been a, a a big place for a lot of these pure play independents, as you just mentioned. Um, but where does that leave some of the bigger players, the Chevrons, the XTOs, the the Occidentals? Um, right now, I mean, we've definitely we're finally starting to see them become more active in the Permian, both on an A and D side. Uh, we saw Oxy do a roughly, I think it was a one point eight billion dollar transaction with uh, three privately held here in the third quarter. Uh, in the Permian, or I'm sorry, in the uh, Delaware subbasin, um, but you know they also really hadn't done as much on the drilling side either. Their their rig counts had been low, and a lot of people wondered what you know what are they waiting around for. What they're waiting around for is to sort of let everybody else prove this stuff up, and then to begin to apply some of their some of the things that they're good at, which is really large scale drilling programs and things like that. Um, you know. I think one of the things to watch, everyone says oil is going to be more volatile. You know, they're up, you got the CEOs at the podium with a smile on their face. Oil is going to be more volatile. But think about what that really means. I mean, oil is going to go down probably from where it is today at some point. And it might go up again. It might go down again. But, uh, you know, that might happen at the worst of times, like as frac costs are rising in the basin, which they already are. And so it doesn't necessarily have to be a distress situation. I mean, just think of some of these Permian pure plays that I brought up earlier once some of those stock prices do come down, if some of those stock prices do come down, I think you'll definitely see folks like Oxy, Chevron, ExxonMobil, you know, begin to potentially take some interest in some of those other companies. I think, you know, everybody's been waiting on this huge deal for, say, Pioneer or something like that. I would look a little bit down the food chain and see where there might be some value in a company that's got Permian acreage that isn't getting full credit for it. And so this can go on for a while. I mean, I was talking with an analyst at Woodmac and said something like 40 companies have drilled their first well in the Delaware Basin in the last three years. And a hand, you know, some of them are here to stay. They're new entrants. And, but you know, a lot of them are, are looking to monetize. Um, and so there's going to be a steady pipeline of deals. I, I talked to another guy at an A&D shop, and he said he wouldn't be surprised to see half a dozen billion-dollar deals announced by the end of 2016. Wow. <laughs> Not a lot of time for that left. But. Not a lot of time. His comment was there are going to be a lot of guys spending Christmas in a boardroom. 
uh, <laughs> trying to get these things done by the end of the year. And so it's um, there's a lot left to come, even in 2016, I think. All right. Well, it is obviously an active area and um, a lot of really good stuff in that uh, Permian Focus that is online right now. So go check that out at upstreamonline.com. Coming up, we'll hear a bit about the history of the Permian Basin in an interview with Jim Henry. The bit will be back right after this. Welcome back to The Bit. The Permian Basin has been discovered and rediscovered and rediscovered again over the years. It's a play that seems will never die. Lots of wildcatters and companies have made fortunes in the desolate expanses of West Texas and New Mexico, but few have been doing it as long as Jim Henry, the founder of Henry Petroleum and Henry Resources. Noah, you sat down with Mr. Henry a few weeks ago, and we're going to hear a portion of that conversation, but only a portion because you guys talked for like an hour and a half or something like that. Um, But uh, just give us a little introduction to Jim Henry, since I think a lot of uh, people might not be exactly familiar with who he is, um, and just what his companies have accomplished in the Permian Basin over the last several decades. Sure, yeah. And I will say, I mean, I I had an incredible time catching up with Mr. Henry, and he's incredibly generous with his time. If you do get a chance to talk to him, uh, he is... uh, he can tell you a lot about the Permian Basin over the last 40, more than 40 years. Um, and so Mr. Henry, uh, you know, he began his career like a lot of Midland wildcatters at uh, Humble Oil, which went on to become ExxonMobil. Uh, and he worked for a f- you know, few companies as an engineer um, through until about January of uh, 1969, when the company he was working for essentially lost its investor and he had a choice as to whether or not to go find another job or to strike out on his own. Uh, And so he and a partner started a consulting firm, and they did geologic and engineering work and stuff and worked their way up, uh, eventually became operators, and and then started taking stakes in in their own projects. And so, you know, Henry Petroleum was an active independent in the Sprayberry uh, trend when, back when the Sprayberry was the the largest uneconomic oil field in the world at the time, they were joking. Um, But it was when he was with, uh, when he was with Henry Petroleum, and they began looking at the wolf camp. Uh, a little bit. So they were drilling through the sprayberry and started experimenting, drilling all the way through the wolf camp and commingling it and had an incredible amount of success. And you'll hear a lot more about that in the interview. But, um, you know, it became known as the Wolfberry play and was one of the sort of leading factors when a lot of other places in the country were still were going horizontal. Uh, a lot of Wolfberry producers were making great wells, um, you know, vertically. So he eventually sold that project after he amassed you know, uh, he had a portion of 300,000 acres uh, in the core of the Midland Basin that he eventually sold to Concho Resources um, and then built an entire another position uh, in the Permian Basin or in the Midland Basin that was eventually sold to Lynn Energy. Um, and so, you know, then now he started a whole other company again and now he's doing Henry Resources. All right. Well, here is Noah's conversation with Jim Henry. Um, but yeah, would just love uh-huh. to hear... Yeah. Uh, Mm-hmm. Some some of how how you got going and and uh, mm-hmm. you know the story of, of the Permian. Yeah, um, it's uh-huh. been a heck of a ride, I would guess. It's been a tremendous ride. It's been very interesting. Uh, uh, we've always been uh, very conservative mm-hmm. because uh, I saw so many of my friends go broke, 
Yeah, you, but uh, it's ups and downs, swings up and down. If you, it, when you, when it goes down and the oil price goes down, and you can't, uh, your reserves aren't worth nearly as much, mm-hmm. and then you've got all this money borrowed against these reserves, mm-hmm. you go out of business. So I've seen a lot of them do that, and I, I don't like doing that. So yeah. Um, then the very first one I was in is 1986. Okay. That downturn. Yeah. And so uh, for that that downturn. Uh, I read a report by Henry Grappi in 1984, mm-hmm. and he said it's going uh, going to go down. Everybody else was saying it's going up, and I thought it was going up. Yeah. And uh, so I said, but if Henry Grappi's right, I'm out of business because I got too much debt. Mm-hmm. So I sold half my oil reserves and paid off all our debt. So uh-huh. we were in good shape coming. So you went into '86 with a clean balance with sheet, clean balance and you had right, and right. still had half your assets to, yes, to right. work with. Uh-huh. Right, exactly. I bet there are a lot of people that wish they had uh, oh, followed yeah. that model. Oh, a lot of people that wish they had. Uh-huh. And uh, but uh, I just you know so we've been conservative like that, mm-hmm. and that means you don't make as much money mm-hmm. because you don't use leverage on on your projects, but. Uh, you do stay in the phone book. That's, I'd rather, I'd be I'd rather be in the phone book. I'd rather be here than rich. <laughs> rich is not a not an option. That I was really interested in. I was interested in staying around. Yeah. Well, and and yeah. Uh, it's it's worked out. <laughs> worked out great. Yeah, it has uh-huh. because opportunity then hit. Yeah. When we were staying around. And so, I mean, what gave you the, the confidence to go in and, and drill below the sprayberry into the wolf camp? I mean, everything had sort of stopped at the wolf camp prior to that, or right. well, you know, wasn't seen as really yeah. uh-huh. worthwhile. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, we were uh, drilling sprayberry wells, and we got a chance to get a farm out on about, uh, 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 about uh, oh, 10 locations uh, from CMS. Uh, Consolidated Michigan uh, S, uh, whatever S is, uh, C, M, C, 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 Consolidated Michigan. Uh, so, um, and uh, uh, Danny Campbell, that was head of CMS here, uh, is now our head of our oil company. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and we hired uh, Dennis uh, Phelps, uh, and Dennis Phelps was a consulting geologist, and uh, he had worked for ARCO. And Arco had, uh, through Dennis Phelps, had brought in the George Mitchell frack. Okay. Which, uh, really, he, he finished discovering that about 2000. Yeah. So we brought it over here, or Arco brought it over here, even before 2000, his, his way of drilling, his way of fracking. Mm-hmm. These were all vertical wells. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, we used uh, what uh, Arco did and what CMS did is they drilled down into the wolf camp mm-hmm. and they fracked the top of the wolf camp and the sprayberry. And then uh, uh, we refined the frack trick meat further and uh, drilled further down through, drilled through the wolf camp. But what we did was different from ARCO is that we then drilled uh, a well, we dr- drilled a well up in, it's in uh, uh, Midland County where they were drilling. And uh, we drilled a well in Midland County, and then uh, drilled another one 16 miles south. 16 miles to the south? 16 miles to the south. Okay. Both wells turned out good. And so we knew we had a field 16 miles long. And we calculated the reserves in that field 
would be about uh, uh, three billion barrels, the, uh, the producible reserves, not the just oil in place. Yeah. Uh, and uh, talked to Scott Tinker with the Geological Society. Uh -huh. Yeah, you know Scott. Yeah, I thought he was a nice guy. Yeah, he is. He's really nice. I said, Scott, how big is this discovery? We've discovered a three billion barrel field. He said it's probably the largest discovery in uh, the last fifty years in the Permian Basin. Mm -hmm. So we had the largest discovery in the last fifty years in the Permian Basin, and then uh, we started drilling. And we had about uh, oh, 40 people in our company, and we started drilling with 10 rigs, and we had to ramp up to about 100 people. We had 10 rigs running at all times, and we were improving the frack technique as we went along, getting, getting better and better at it. Mm -hmm. So we were drilling all these economic wells. Nobody knew what was going on. They just uh, thought Henry was... We just did it. We, we've always been a spray bread driller. Yeah, and you just gotten some investor money, yeah, and, and we're, money, right. yeah. we're uh -huh. moving ahead with it. Yeah, uh -huh. they didn't realize what it was. Uh, so it wasn't that it was a big secret. It was that they just didn't really understand the it, dynamics, kind yeah. of of. They didn't understand the dynamics. Yeah, but it was a big secret. Yeah, because we we acquired three hundred thousand acres uh, with that concept. With that concept, uh, right? So. But we only owned a quarter of it. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Arco, uh, I think it's Pure, owned the rest. And then, then Pure, or, or Arco, I can't remember, mm -hmm. sold out to BP. And so, uh, so but then when we, we, we went then over to uh, take, let's see, we're a small oil company, so yeah. we couldn't afford to do all this. So then we went to Chevron, and we <coughs> made Chevron several billion barrels, <laughs> dollars. <Yeah. laughs> so, uh, so that's... Uh, Kind of how uh, it, it started. We we started in 2003, mm -hmm. had it all to ourselves to 2005. Do you have one deal that stands out the most successful? Sure, that's easy. Concho. Concho. We sold the whole company to Concho. I said I would never sell our company, but I did, and uh, we we had 100 employees. 80 went to Concho, and they still are there, most of them, and 20 stayed with us. And we let a lot of our best people go because we wanted them to be successful on it. Uh, mm -hmm. And then uh, we turned around in, and uh, leased a bunch of more acreage in the heart of the play and then drilled that and sold it to Lynn. Okay. Now, the concert was the best one that, we, that we'd do. Lynn was the worst. Really? Why? Um, well, we got more than the properties were worth. Lynn paid uh, a really a lot for them, mm -hmm. more than the property was worth at the time. But they were in the heart of the play. And uh, and now we're buying back those same properties at 20,000 an acre or so, when we sold it maybe at 5,000 an acre or so. And not only did we sell it, but uh, we got, uh, when we tried to get back in the play like we had after Concho, we got back and bought a lot more acreage. There wasn't any more acreage to buy. So we couldn't couldn't find any more acreage. So we didn't do anything for two years, or very little. Mm -hmm. We did some wells on the on the platform. Since we couldn't get acreage in the heart of the play, we branched out and uh, drilled on the edges of the play. And uh, that didn't turn out so good. So we back in the heart of the play, paying um, paying a lot more money. 
And then uh, I just gotta ask you one more question. I, sure. You're an oil man who drives a Tesla, I understand. I do. I do. <laughs> uh, what? <laughs> and I mean, is that, are you concerned as someone who drives a Tesla and obviously probably yeah. enjoys driving it? I've heard oh, they're, yeah. they're uh -huh. quite fun. Yeah, they are. Uh -huh. I mean, what does that, looking into the future, uh -huh. how does that influence your, your views on your industry and your business? Well, the concept was, uh, well, first my wife bought it to us for our fit bought it for me for our 50th anniversary. It's a good present. <laughs> it's a really good present. And second, I love to drive fast cars. I don't drive fast, but I may take off fast from the stop sign. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, third, though, uh, I want to know more about the electric car industry. So I'm studying it and I, because uh, it's an innovation, it's technology. Don't ever bet against technology. The technology reminds me of the auto industry in the early 1900s uh, because people hated the car. It won't drive in mud. You can't even drive it up some hills. You had to get out and push it up hills. It was didn't have enough power. So uh, and they didn't like it. And horses were so much more reliable. I guess what? There's not any horses anymore. <laughs> it sounds similar to what people are saying about electrics versus yeah. versus yeah. Uh, combustion engines. Yeah. yeah, right. Everything you hear. It's, but don't bet against technology. Technology's there and it will get better and better. So, but it'll be a long time, it won't be in my lifetime that uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, see, we'll see a dent in it. We'll see one, two, three percent dent in it. Mm -hmm. We have half our money in uh, uh, alternative investments and half in oil. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're, uh, we're, Survival proof, I think. Yeah, uh, you aim right. to be in the phone book for a uh, long time. We want time. to be in the phone book, right? <laughs> That's right. No. <laughs> You've uh, done a good job keeping your name in there for uh, for a good long time We're already, and so right. All right. <laughs> I think it's a good strategy. Yeah, thanks. That was Noah Brenner talking with Jim Henry of Henry Resources. The bit will be back right after this. Welcome back to The Bit. It can be hard out there for oil and gas drillers, and sometimes people fail. This week we look back on an incident that happened in September in the Gulf of Mexico, but was more recently detailed in a report by the Bureau of Safety and Environmental Enforcement. I'd encourage you to go read the whole report, which will be posted on upstreamonline.com. While operating drill ship Ocean Black Hornet in the Marco Polo field in the Green Canyon area of the Gulf of Mexico, someone made a mistake. The rig is owned by Diamond Offshore and contracted to Anadarko and had recently undergone an upgrade to its blowout preventer system that included an emergency disconnect sequence, or EDS. The EDS is designed to shut in the wellbore and disconnect the lower marine riser package from the lower BOP stack so the rig can safely get off of location during emergencies. The EDS system had been frequently tested in the days leading up to this incident. The tests were initiated with a call up to the bridge with no forewarning. On this particular day, a compliance technician decided to conduct the weekly emergency shutdown system for the subsea infrastructure. That acronym is ESD. According to U.S. regulators, when the technician called the bridge to initiate the ESD test, 
the crewman misunderstood and activated the EDS instead. He realized what he had done almost immediately, but it was too late. The BOP plummeted more than 2,300 feet to the ocean floor, where it wedged in the mud with just a few feet sticking out. Luckily, there was no damage to the rig, the subsea equipment, or the environment, and no injuries sustained, according to the report. But drilling was delayed, and the BOP was not recovered for more than two weeks. The investigation blamed the dropped BOP on human error and, quote, momentary confusion. Anadarko and Diamond have both taken measures to make sure this kind of mistake does not happen again. But we would point out that part of the confusion was clearly derived from the abundance of acronyms that industry seems to rely on rather than speaking plainly and clearly. And we're all very glad to hear that the only result of this was a little egg on the face and probably millions of dollars in lost time. But if it leads to more direct and thoughtful communication, then maybe some good will come of it. That does it for another episode of The Bit. Thanks for listening. The Bit is a production of NHST and is produced by me, Luke Johnson. RDG provides the bumper music. Dr. Eric Starr on trombone. If you want to get in touch with us, email us at thebit at upstreamonline.com. We're also on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Go check out our website at upstreamonline.com, your home for independent oil and gas news. We'll be back next time with even more oil and gas news, but until then, keep your bit spinning to the right. WTF, you TD the BOP with the ESD.